There was a man with a bad heart. A telephone number scribbled on a cash register receipt and a corpse on the other side of town. But I couldn't see the connection between them until I realized that they were all tied together by the same long rope worth $30,000. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Long Rope. I'd finally wound up a sour case in which I'd been kicked around, disillusioned, and shortchanged. And in my book, a routine like that calls for relaxation. So I'd spent the morning sleeping and the afternoon in a Turkish bath, being worked over on the table by Nick Takalakis, a non-talking masseur who untied knots in more muscles than I thought I had. He was trying to tear loose my Achilles tendon when the phone rang. It was for me. Nick wouldn't let me up, so I took it lying down. Yeah? Marlowe speaking. My name is Sidney Vanetta, Mr. Marlowe. I've tried all afternoon to reach you. Oh? Nick, what can I do for you, Mr. Veneta? I've already made your reservation with American Airlines. You're leaving on the 10 o'clock plane tonight, and you're taking with you a set of pearls for a certain buyer in Chicago. Now, wait a minute, Mr. Veneta. Maybe I can... No, maybe, Marlowe. I've checked thoroughly on you and find you entirely qualified, which is important because the pearls are a perfectly matched set in a rope valued at about $30,000. The buyer wants them, and I made up my mind just this morning to sell. The proceeds will go to my niece. Lucky girl. Indeed she is, particularly since I have no respect for her as a woman. She presumes to be a sculptress of all things, but she's my only heir. I'm selling the pearls simply because I know she would, and I can get more for them. Yeah, I... Ooh! Hey, Nick, wait a minute, will you? Why all the hurry, Mr. Veneta? First, the buyer is leaving Chicago tomorrow. Second, my heart may fail me at any moment. That's the hurry, Mr. Marlowe. I see. Well, I'll take the job, uh, conditionally. But suppose I come out and talk with you. Telephones are deceptive. Very well. Come to 7241 Adams, just below Western. I'll expect you in an hour, at 6, sharp. Side door will be open, so let yourself in. Sounds like you're alone out there. I am. I just fired my nurse, a Miss Drew, and as stupid a woman as the earth was ever cursed. But <coughs> well, I shouldn't get excited about it. I've engaged a new one due here at 5.30, but who will no doubt be late. So as I say, Marlowe, when you get here, just let yourself in. Goodbye. Goodbye. Well, Nick, you better hurry it up. I gotta see a man about a rope worth 30 grand. Yeah, yeah, that's right. A rope worth $30,000. Benetta's place on Adams was a big, fancy, and dirty gray place. Forty years ago, it had been a proud, expensive house. But now it squatted at the back end of a rundown yard like a bitter old man too tired to move. I found the side door unlocked and went in. The hallway was dusky and had the odor of moldy wool. I called Vanetta's name but got no answer. So I poked on in until I heard the snapping of an open fire. It came from the library. A big chair was drawn up in front of the fireplace and there Vanetta sat. His chin sunk deep in his chest and his eyes closed. I coughed but he didn't hear me so... I stepped close and shook him gently by the shoulder. Mm-hmm. All it took was a gentle shake. He sagged forward and poured out of the chair like stiff syrup. 
Mr. Veneta was dead. I started for the phone to report the body, but then I heard gravel crunch in the driveway. Someone else was coming in that side door, so I stepped out into the hall and waited. Mr. Veneta, it's... Uh... Oh. Who are you? Philip Marlowe, who are you? Steve Temple, I'm Mr. Veneta's business agent. You're on business now? Yes, I am. It's all the same to you. I came to see Mr. Veneta regarding some pearls. So if you'll excuse... Oh. Yeah, the pearls can wait. Their owner's dead. So it finally happened, huh? You're taking the news very well, Temple. I've been expecting it every day for five years. You found him, I suppose? Mm-hmm. We had an appointment at six. He wanted me to fly his pearls to Chicago. Uh, what are you staring at, Temple? Why, why this uh, bottle of medicine here. What about it? Well, for years, he's kept this stuff beside him in case of an attack. Yet, when he actually needed it, it was over here on the sideboard out of his reach. <laughs> Ironic, isn't it? Very. He fired Miss Drew, his old nurse, today and didn't expect a new one until 5.30. Say, do you happen to know her name? No one. You mean uh, he's engaged a new nurse? That's right. She's an hour late already. Yeah. Well, for once, that doesn't matter to Mr. Veneta. Say, Temple, are you acquainted with his niece? Vivian Russell? Mm Mm-hmm. Of course. She's a sculptress. There's a studio out on Fountain, uh, near Bronson, I believe. She was to get the proceeds from the pearls. Well, I assumed that, although nothing was ever said. She's his only heir. Mm. Where would those pearls be now? I kept them in a wall safe behind that picture there, consistently against my advice. Yeah, sure. Hmm, opens with a key. Where would that be? He carried it with him on his watch chain. Why? What are you going to do? i take a look at the pearls, then have them impounded. Yeah, this must be the key. Let's open it up. He's there, that uh, velvet case. As big as an overnight bag. Must be some string of beads. It is, Marlowe. Here, let me open it. There. All right. It's nothing but tissue paper. Yeah. It's not too surprising. While Temple called the police and tried to keep the details straight on a natural death and an unnatural theft, I went over the room again with a new viewpoint. All that turned up without an easy explanation was one, a cash register receipt for $1.34 with the phone number Republic 2809 penciled on the back. And two, the peculiar position of Mr. Veneta's medicine bottle, which Temple had already noticed. I dropped the receipt in my pocket and told Temple to wait for the law. He gave me his home address and phone number, and I promised to check in with him later and left. The first stop was a phone booth where I dug into the nurse's registries and hit pay dirt on the fourth call. Miss Drew? Yes, we have a Miss Drew. Is she the one who worked for Mr. Sidney Veneta but was fired this afternoon? That's his opinion. Actually, Miss Drew quit. All right, have it your way. Where can I get in touch with her? She's right here where she's been since 3 o'clock this afternoon. What is the nature of your business, sir? Never mind. You've already answered my question. Uh, but look, Mr. Veneta hired another nurse to replace Miss Drew. Is the new girl one of yours? Absolutely not. Mr. Veneta will never get another nurse from this registry or from any other that I know of. You're so right. He's utterly impossible to please in any way, and we're through trying. Goodbye. Well, Miss Drew was in the clear. Veneta began to focus as a pretty odd Johnny. But I was still trying to figure why the new nurse hadn't shown up. When I reached for a cigarette and brought out the cash register receipt with the phone number on the back. So I tried it. Republic 2809. It rang, but nothing happened. 
I got in my car then and drove up to Hollywood and out Fountain to Bronson, where the only Veneta air, Miss Vivian Russell, had a studio. It was a converted double garage with a lot of north windows, so her new close-to-the-ground Hudson sat outside in the driveway. The adjoining four-room apartment looked cozy enough, if you liked wading through chunks of marble and eating off of last week's newspaper. Yeah, I was braced for a dowdy Amazon with broken fingernails as I rang the bell. That's why the dainty 118 pounds of taboo-scented blonde, who was clad in tan chartreuse yards of whispering silk cut like lounging pajamas, caught me as flat-footed as a duck when she opened the door. Hi. Did you want something? Uh, yes. Yeah, I... My name is Marlowe. I'd like to speak to Miss Vivian Russell. You are? So go ahead and enjoy yourself, Marlowe. Uh... May I come inside? I have some bad news, Miss Russell. Oh, well, sure. Come on in. Now, uh, shall I sit down or just hang on to something? Suit yourself. Your uncle, Mr. Vanetta, died this afternoon. Oh, his heart finally gave up, did it, huh? Yeah, yeah, but you shouldn't go all to pieces like that, Vivian. Now, wait. He meant nothing to me, but I'm glad his suffering is over. The pearls are missing, too. Oh, really? What happened to them? They were stolen. And don't tell me that means nothing to you because you're getting the money, 30,000 bucks worth. What? Uncle Sidney intended to give me the money from those pearls? How do you know that? I'm a private detective, he told me. He was my client. Oh, then you're out of a job. Say, how would you like to work for me, Marlowe? I- I'm serious. Now I want those pearls back, you know. Well, for 25 a day in expenses, it's a deal. Now you tell me something. Who did your uncle hire today to replace Miss Drew? The nurse? Hmm. Why, well, I didn't even know Miss Drew had been fired. How did you know she didn't quit? With Uncle Sidney? <laughs> Try me again. Republic 2809. That doesn't mean a thing. Mm. You know, Marlowe, you've got an awfully good head. Are you speaking as a sculptress or just an ordinary chiseler? And what is that crack supposed to mean? You didn't know you were getting the money legally. You might have taken the pros yourself. Oh, stop it, Marlowe. Okay, client. Well, I'll run along. I've got work to do. All right, but uh, don't forget that all work and no play makes for a dull companion. Yes, and it also makes 25 bucks a day. (laughs) I'll be seeing you. All the way down Sunset to Vine Street, I kept telling myself a buck's a buck regardless. But the idea that I'd been grabbed at stayed with me. Vivian Russell had plenty of motive as a dry land pearl diver, and if that's true, she'd need a patsy just to keep her abreast of the situation. I turned north on Vine and twisted up Beachwood Drive to 2000, the number Steve Temple had given me. He had had two hours of playing 20 questions policeman style, and I figured it was time to check his score. Also, Temple was the man to fill in a few blanks on my new client for me. His place was dark, but I got out anyway and started up the walk to his door. I'd gone about a dozen steps into a tunnel of overhanging shrubs when I heard it. Psst. Hey, you. I turned as a man stepped out onto the walk and came toward me slowly. He was tall, wiry, with a thin, arrogant face that sneered out from under an expanse of forehead big enough for three sets of eyebrows. All shaggy. We're going to have a talk, Mr. Temple. Hey, you're not Temple. Now we both know that. I'm a friend of his. What do you want with Temple? I've got a message for him, but it's personal. Who from? Like I say, it's personal, mister. I'll be back later. Come here. I said I'm a friend of Temple's. If you got a message for him, I'll see that he gets it. Well, okay, then. Tell him that some of his friends are too blasted nosy. No! guy with the forehead had a great left jab and a pair of hurdler's legs, and by the time I untangled myself from the brush and got out on the walk again, he was gone. 
Well, I knew it was a waste of time, but I tried Temple's doorbell twice before I went back to my car. Nothing made sense, except that somebody who knew his way around had stolen a long rope of pearls. And somewhere in the city was a nurse who hadn't shown up on a new job. Beyond that, it was all question marks. Well, I drove down to the filling station on the corner and went inside to the phone. I started to call police headquarters, but instead... Drop the nickel in and dial Republic 2809 again. Just on a hunch. Lieutenant Ibarra speaking. Ibarra? I didn't dial you, Ibarra. What? This is Marlowe. Well, you got me anyway. Well, listen, Phil, I hear you're on that Venetic case. Yeah. If it'll help you any, the coroner says definitely he died of a heart attack. No homicide involved. Mm. Thanks, Lieutenant. Hey, but look, where are you now? In a flat on the corner of Union and 59th Street. Why? Well, is that phone number there, Republic 2809? Well, that's a great piece of deduction. You just called it. Ibarra, listen, I found that number at Vanetta's place this afternoon. What's going on down there? There's a girl here named Betty Larson. Yeah, she's a nurse, right? No, wrong, Phil. She's a corpse. Oh. Before that, she was a waitress. Just a waitress. Somebody came to a door and killed her for no apparent reason whatsoever. <laughs> just a moment, we will return to the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, Jack Benny will be along on CBS tomorrow night with one of his funniest shows ever. In addition to his regular hecklers, Dennis, Don, Phil, Mary, and Rochester, Claudette Colbert and Vincent Price will pay a call on Jack. And with Don Wilson still wanting a raise in pay and with Jack still trying to starve him into talking terms, you're sure to find the situations full of the hilarity and fast-moving fun that have made CBS's Jack Benny Show the top-rating comedy of all. Yes, remember, CBS also means Catch Benny Sundays. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Long Rope. It was 40 minutes of thick stop-and-go traffic from the time I quit talking to Ibarra until I pulled up near the four stories of faded, sagging tenement on the corner of Union and 59th. But even then, the crazy question that had been weaving in and out of my mind like a 2 a.m. drunk looking for the way to go home was still with me. Why was the telephone number Republic 2809 bracketed by a couple of dead people who, as far as I could see, should have had nothing to do with each other in the first place? And right there for the tenth time running, I drew a complete and unabridged blank. But a minute later, when I climbed out of my coupe and over the bumpers of the half-dozen squad cars that were jammed into the narrow street like so many toy autos that a kid had forgotten about, I quit asking myself riddles and started looking for Detective Lieutenant Ibarra, a quiet man who always preferred fact to fancy. I found him in a cheap but clean uniform crowded room on the second floor, standing a few feet away from the body of Betty Lawson, a girl in a bathrobe who had once been something pretty in her early 20s. Well, Phil, the coroner says she was shot twice in the chest at close range. Died instantly. Is that where she fell, Lieutenant, there near the door? Yeah, looks like she'd just gotten home and into her robe and someone she didn't know knocked on the door. The safety chain was still on when we got here. The windows lead no place. Those chains let a door open just wide enough for the barrel of a gun, is that it? Yeah, but how does all this add with those missing pearls and the rest of that business over on Adams, Marlowe? Not like two and two, believe me. So far, Ibarra, the only question is the telephone number. Tell me, where did this Betty Lawson work? Well, we haven't gotten that far yet. So long, Lieutenant. Yeah, so long. Right now, we only know that she was a waitress who stayed here with her brother, who was some kind of a student. They got along pretty well together. She was single, too. Lived here since... Oh, wait a minute. Mm. Tony Barr. 
Oh, yeah, Mooney. Ryan's Cafe, huh? Ryan himself runs it. Okay. Uh, I'll check it personally, right? Hey, is that where she worked? You borrow Ryan's Cafe? Yeah, but it's funny, Phil. She lived here since early 1947. And Mooney tells me she worked that 24-hour hash house just as long, yet it's way over on the other side of town in Western. Western and where, Ebora? The 2300 block. Should be near Washington. Washington, which is only one block from Adams, and that starts to close the big circle. What do you mean, Marlowe? Well, that the Veneta place is on Adams near Western. Look, Ibarra, how about letting me huddle over a cup of Ryan's coffee before the law steps in, huh? Oh, I got a hunch you want to check, Phil? Yeah, yeah, that and a cash register receipt. What do you say? Uh, all right, but play it close, fellow. Ryan probably doesn't know about this yet. No? Unless, of course, he squeezed the trigger. Goodbye, Ibarra. <laughs> a half hour getting over to Ryan's Cafe on Weston, which turned out to be a lot of steamed over plate glass, bragging about a 40-cent hot roast beef sandwich and two-foot-high white chalk letters. And inside, the motif was the same. Everything that Mr. Ryan sold was a bargain. I slid onto a shaky stool opposite a cash customer who was something dirty in a torn overcoat buried deep in a handicapper sheet and coffee. He looked up once, grinned no teeth at me, then hollered for Ryan in the kitchen who said that he only had two hands and would be out in a minute. But before those 60 seconds ran out, I looked around, and over in a corner in a collection of trash piled next to a broom, I saw a very welcome piece of paper. It was a brother of the cash register receipt that I'd found on Sidney Vanetta's desk, a one that had tied Betty Lawson's murder onto the rope of pearls. I turned back to the counter just as Ryan started toward me. He was a little bigger and a little better looking than the average ape. And on his right arm, under thick, coarse black hair that was long enough to braid, there was a tattoo of a dancing girl who, if Ryan ever shaved about his wrist, would freeze to death. What'll it be, mister? Coffee? Yeah. And a little information. You know Sidney Vanetta, Ryan? That screwball with a bump ticker over on Adams? Yeah, I know him. Why? What's up? His time on Earth, for one thing, he's dead. Too bad. Should have taken it easier. Mm. Cream? No. Pearls. you say? Nothing. Ryan, who brought that tray up to the Veneta place this afternoon? I did. Sure it wasn't Betty Lawson? I'm positive. None of the girls would go near that place. Veneta was hard to get along with. Now you tell me something. What are you, mister? Newshound, collection man, or cop? Getting warm, Ryan. I'm a private detective named Marlowe. I'm thrilled. Good night. Before I finish my coffee? Before I throw you out. I don't like too many questions. Not even easy ones, huh? Like who murdered Betty Lawson? Be Betty's dead? Yeah. Over in a flat on 59th Street. Shot twice with a 32. When'd you last see her, Ryan? Why, a couple of hours ago when she quit for the night. Marlowe, have the cops got any idea who did it? I don't know. Right now they're looking for a boyfriend. You're crazy. Betty didn't have a boyfriend. Outside of you? Outside of me. So I'm going over to straighten them out now. Mitchie! Mitchie! Yeah. Get out here and take over. Okay. I gotta move fast. No, you don't, Ryan. Betty's dead, remember? Yeah, but whoever did it ain't. Now, don't try to stop me, Marlowe. You'll get hurt. Look, Ryan, why don't you play smart and... Oh, what's the use? Go on, start running. You won't get very far. For the first time that night, I felt sure of what I was saying. Because even as Ryan had squared himself away to play bounce the private detective, I suddenly noticed a friendly face working hard over a stale donut at the far end of the counter. 
was Lieutenant Ibarra. And when Ryan tossed his apron aside, grabbed at his coat, and slammed out the front door, Ibarra turned and nodded at a short man nearby who was idly picking his teeth with the end of a book of matches. At that, the man dropped the matches into his pocket and left. Then Ibarra moved over to me. Didn't mean to crowd you here, Phil, but after you left, we found out that Ryan and Betty Larson used to see quite a bit of each other. Don't apologize, Ibarra. Probably would have cost me a couple of front teeth if I hadn't noticed you. Warm up the coffee, mister? Yeah, please. You, Ibarra? No, Phil, I gotta move now. You see, I don't think Ryan did this. Mm-hmm. I told Mooney to follow him, but not to pick him up. The chances are good that Ryan's heading straight for Betty's apartment to demand that the police find out who killed his girl, so I'm going the other way, to Ryan's house. There may be another woman in this jealous one. But no rope of pearls, huh? No, Marlowe, I don't think so. Good night now. Night, Lieutenant. Well, Mitzi, how long have you worked here? A couple of days. But I don't know nothing about Mr. Ryan. I'm a married woman and I... Hey, what do you think you're staring at, mister? Maybe something wonderful, Mitzi. Tell me, baby, do you always wear that kind of a uniform when you're working here? Sure. Ryan says this girl should look neat and clean. It helps business. Anything wrong with that? No, no, no. Matter of fact, it might be just the lead I'm after. What are you talking about? Yeah, and if I'm right, baby, the rest of this case will be a cinch. So good night and thanks. You've been a big help, sweetheart. When I got back to the corner of Union and 59th, I took the stairs up to Betty Larson's flat two at a time, crossed the fingers on both hands and prayed that Ibarra was right about Ryan returning to his girl's place. When I stepped into the room a second later... I knew that I'd never doubt the good lieutenant again because standing next to an open window and staring out at nothing was Ryan himself, numbed and red-eyed. I asked him one question, and although his answer was only a couple of words mumbled between trembling lips, it was all I had to know. Now everything, Betty Larson's murder, the death of Vanetta, the guy with the forehead and the missing pearls, the whole shebang was starting to fall together. Oh, come on, baby, be home, please. Marlo, Vivian. Look, honey, I want you to do me a favor. Get hold of Steve Temple and meet me over at your uncle's place on Adams as soon as possible. I need your help. Goodbye. Well, Marlo, what took you so long? I understood you needed our help, but in a hurry at that. I had quite a way to come, Temple. Is Vivian here? Yes, Marlo, Vivian's here, and that means that we can stop counting noses. Now, why do you need our help? Catch someone who stole once and murdered twice? Murdered twice? That's right. You know, it's my guess that whoever stole that rope of pearls also moved Vanetta's medicine out of reach when his heart started skipping beats. Can you prove that? No. No, I can't. But it doesn't matter, really, because the guilty one also killed a party named Lawson. And when you pay for one, Vivian, you paid for them all. I don't follow you, Marlowe. Who are you talking about? I'm not sure, but this much is certain. Vanetta called me at five. When I got here at six, he was already dead and the pearls were gone. I figure that whoever took them argued with them first, which makes that person, one, somebody who knew Vanetta, and two, responsible for the old man's death. Then the new nurse couldn't possibly have been the one who stole the pearls. No, but the new nurse could have been the one who overheard everything while standing right here. Haven't you been able to find this nurse? Uh, not yet. But sooner or later, honey, I'm sure we'll catch up to him. Him? Yes, I, Temple, uh, I said him. Nurse Larson is a male with a lot of forehead and few ethics. The person you killed was a sister Betty, a waitress. And don't move, Temple. Or I'll be glad that I was forced to put holes in you. Temple's the one? He stole the rope of pearls? Yeah. But this nurse Lawson who saw him do it got in touch with him, right, Temple? It was filthy blackmail. Which you were going to stop by a filthier murder, and you almost did. 
Because somehow or other, you got the right room in the right house on Union and 59th, but the wrong party. Isn't that about it, Temple? Yes, Marlowe. That's about it. Oh, leave me alone, Temple. Now, Marlowe, you don't shoot me without going through Vivian first. Dear Vivian, Sidney's precious niece was going to have the pearls all to herself. Don't move, Marlowe. It'll cost Vivian her life if you do. Oh. I doubt that very much, Larson. Temple. Larson. That's right. Joe Larson, forehead and all. Now, you, Temple, step away from that girl or I'll tear you to pieces. No, Larson, no, no. Now, we can still do business like you said in that note you sent me. I'll split with Shut you. up. You forget two things, Temple. First, you tried to kill me. And second, you did kill my sister. Now, why don't you run for it? Or are you afraid? Which is it? Come on, Temple, talk. I... I am afraid. Well, Marlo, that just about winds things up. Yep. Joe Larson sent up for attempted extortion and Temple... Sent up for good. Mm -hmm. Say, Marlo, when you called a while ago and said that you wanted Temple and me to help you, did you know then that Temple was the murderer? No, I didn't, Vivian. Then I only knew that whoever had killed Betty Larson had mistaken her for the new nurse and that the actual nurse was Betty's brother, Joe. Where'd you get hold of that, Phil? Well, it started in Ryan's Cafe, Barra, just after you left. I had nurses on the brain, I guess. And when I took a good look at the waitress there, I suddenly realized that her white uniform, white shoes, and white cap could easily confuse a guy like Temple, who also had nurses on the brain. Well, um, I can see a killer making a mistake about appearances, all right, but I still don't understand how it is that the telephone number of my uncle's nurse turned out to be Betty's apartment. Because a nurse did live there, honey. Betty's brother was a medical student, part-time male nurse, and full-time bum. You see, Ryan, who brought food to Uncle Sidney, knew that he needed a new nurse, and he sold him on the idea of Joe Lawson because he wanted his girlfriend's brother to have a job. Oh, I get it. Say, I know what I'm going to do with those pearls. Sell them? To the highest bidder. Oh, no, I'm going to break up that set. Break up the set? Yeah, I'd like very much to get a pair of earrings out of them. Oh, and uh, for each of you, uh, a set of cufflinks. Good night, gentlemen. <laughs> When Vivian got into her car, aimed it toward a collection of chipped rocks on Fountain near Bronson, and waved goodbye, it was nearly three o'clock in the morning. No. After I said so long to Ibarra and started back to my apartment on Franklin, an idea hit me for the first time. A pearl is the result of the irritation of an oyster, a disease. And when you string a lot of diseases together, the result is frequently a plague. But it's from plagues like that that I make a living. <laughs> That's what I get for reading books. I wonder if I'll ever go anyplace where I can wear pearl cufflinks. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Junius Matthews, Louis Van Ruten, Faye Baker, David Ellis, Lillian Biaf, and Ed Begley. Lieutenant Detective Ibarra is played by Jeff Corey. The special music is by Richard Orant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... 
A corpse that wouldn't stay dead, a pistol with a silencer on it, and a fortune in a black satchel spelled death for the big city boys when they finally got together in lonesome Arizona. Population 802. Stars light, stars bright, and that's no optical illusion. The brilliant, gleaming list of stars on CBS tomorrow night. Van Johnson's the star on the Prudential Hour drama. Spike Jones will positively appear in a sketch getting the war paint off Bob Hope's latest movie. Jack Benny will have Claudette Colbert and Vincent Price as his special guests. Amos and Andy, Dashiell Hammett, Sam Spade, and Lumen Abner are the next bright stars in line. Then Helen Hayes, first lady of the stage, starring on her Sunday night electric theater followed by Hollywood's own Eve Arden in the wonderfully comic series Our Miss Brooks. In the next to closing, another bright comedy, Life with Luigi, and the whole star lineup, topped off by the world's most brilliant adulpates, the experts on It Pays to Be Ignorant. Jack Benny's program will come to you over all of these same stations, and the others in this vast array of stars will be heard over most of them. Top writers, top directors, and top stars of American show business come to you on CBS. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately. This is Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. A corpse that wouldn't stay dead. A pistol with a silencer on it and a fortune in a black satchel. Spelled death for the big city boys when they finally got together in lonesome Arizona. Population 802. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. And now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story The Lonesome Reunion. feet on a clear afternoon. You can see enough Arizona real estate to become an authority on the subject. And as I huddled around a circle of window aboard an American Airlines flagship and gaped like a two weeks with pay vacationer at the carpet of sand, stone, and cactus unrolling a slow inch at a time below, I was impressed. Also, I was thinking about a job which was providing both the switch and scenery and two crisp $100 bills, less the cost of a round-trip ticket from L.A. to the capital city of Phoenix. But then, at the thought of money, I stopped sightseeing and started to think about the work ahead and how easy it had sounded that morning in my office when Kay Gordon, who was something pretty and blonde but slightly tarnished for 28, had hired me, all in one breath. Marlowe, my brother Joe Gordon is in a room at the Granada Court Hotel in Phoenix, Arizona. In one hand, he no doubt has his usual smelly cigar. In the other, a small suitcase filled with a mess of papers, all legal, all proper. You fly there, pick up the suitcase, fly back for that $200 cash. Yes or no? Yes, on one condition. The papers, do I get to see them? If I look, I go. All right, you look. Good, I go. Goodbye. That was the way it had started an hour after breakfast. Lunch was alone and at the airport. Then it would wait until I'd seen Mr. Joe Gordon, a man who was willing to pay a lot for a little. My plane dropped out of the sky over Phoenix gently at three. 
At 3.15, I was in room 111 of the Granada Hotel and only 36 smelly inches away from the usual cigar. The man behind it was heavy, pale, and maybe 40. And like his sister, Joe Gordon, was overbearing in a hurry. This, Marlowe, is the bag. These, the papers. Stocks, bonds, and mortgages. In themselves, worthless to anyone else. They're non-negotiable. But as information to my competitors, they're priceless. Satisfied? More or less. Meaning what? Exactly what is your line, Mr. Gordon? Oh, I'm a broker. One who bets on long shots. When they come in, I don't like to split with the boys who sit on their hands. Mm. Anything else? Yeah, yeah. I've got some time to kill before I fly back. Do I take the bag now or later? You take the bag now, Mark. Okay. And uh, don't let go of it until you're with my sister in L.A. I'm paying you money to stay away from my enemies, not the shop for trinkets. Oh. Oh, and uh, incidentally, my enemies also play rough. So watch your step and act smart. Real smart. <laughs> I still had two hours to kill when Gordon locked the bag and handed it to me after dropping the key in his pocket. So I decided to take a room there at the Granada Hotel, shave, shower, and stretch. The sleepy clerk in the lobby was not in a hurry, nor did he hear anything I said the first time. So when I finally got to my suite on the second floor, which had as much elbow room as the inside of a lifesaver, 30 of the idle minutes were already gone. I locked and bolted the door, checked all the windows carefully, and then peeled off my shirt broke out my shave master and reached for the knob on the bathroom door. But I never made it. Because as the door swung open, I caught a glimpse of a fist the size of a cantaloupe starting from my jaw. Oh! Now stay right there, Buster. The first time I swing, the second time I shoot. And I do both good. Equal nice, huh? Everything all figured out ahead of time. Yeah. Yeah, but it ain't very hard, Marlo. Especially when the guy you're after shouts it all to a desk clerk. My error. Yeah. Which leaves just the three of us. Real cozy like. Three. You, me, and 120 grand here in this bag. You're way off pace, brother. This bag's got papers in it, nothing more. They belong to a businessman. <laughs> I said something? Yes, you're very funny. Look, Buster, Joe Gordon's no more a businessman, and his real name is Joe Gordon. So after I leave, you go back to Sam Dietrich in room 111 and tell him that Marty Stopka says thanks. For what? For the $120,000 I've been waiting two long years for. And also tell him and Gigi Ganther, who might still be around, that Stopka had it all figured, like you say, Marlowe, ahead of time. I don't follow you, bud. You're not supposed to. Just turn around, face the wall, and listen carefully. You tell Sam Dietrich that I knew he'd pull something like this just as soon as he got back into circulation. You got that? Yeah, yeah. Word for word, Stopka. Good. Now all you have to do is remember. When Marty Stopka said remember, he put that cantaloupe with fingers in the small of my back and shoved hard. By the time I got to my feet again, both he and the black bag were gone. That made Joe Gordon or Sam Dietrich my best bet. So I took the stairs to the ground floor fast and raced for the end of the corridor in room 111. But when I threw the unlocked door open, I found something I hadn't counted on. A curtain flapping in the breeze of an open window and nothing more. The desk drawers, the closet, the bureau empty. And on an end table next to the telephone, a bus schedule unmarked. At that, I was beginning to get very mad at a private detective with public patsy named Philip Marlowe. Then the telephone rang, and when I answered it, the operator said that she had a long-distance call for Joe Gordon. I said, thanks, I'd take it. Hello? Sam, this is Kay. I... Marlowe? Yeah, honey, Joe Marlowe is in Brother Gordon, remember? Oh, I can explain all that, Marlowe. Oh, sure, sure, baby, but not now, later. Later, after you've had a chance to think up a few more lies. All right, all right. So I didn't tell you the whole story. What's the difference? 
Did you get the bag? I did, but I didn't get to keep it very long. Something ugly named Stopka wanted either it or my life, so I made a quick decision. Stopka has the bag. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, isn't it, though? What? One thing, baby. I'm the decoy with suitcase for some kind of shenanigan that's wrapped around 120 grand, which you and Sam Dietrich have. And there's a trio in the act. Namely, Sam Dietrich, Marty Stopka, and one G.G. Ganther. G.G.? Marlowe, have you seen Gigi? Uh, have you, Marlowe? Maybe yes, maybe no. Now, why don't you come clean? Admit you're happy that Stopka got the suitcase from me while Sam beat it out of an open window. That my part of the job is over with. Come on, baby, talk. All right. I'll make it short and to the point. You got $200 for doing nothing. Out of that, 60-odd went for an airplane ticket. The rest is yours, right? Go on. There's no need to, Marlowe. I'm finished, and so are you. So why don't you just be a good fella and keep the change? So long, sucker. <laughs> Kay Gordon hung up, I slammed the phone down, counted ten twice, and went back to the unhappy business of getting mad at Marlowe. But again, I was interrupted. This time, it was a newspaper, the Phoenix Herald, sticking far enough out of the wastebasket under the telephone to expose the dateline, which made it exactly a week old. I picked it up and saw the two inches of story circled in pencil and slug, five released from state penitentiary. Uh, Sam Dietrich, 41 of Los Angeles was arrested in Lonesome, Arizona for the armed robbery of a general store in February 1947, also was released today. Now everything was beginning to add with one high-priced exception. Very few general stores in towns called Lonesome keep 120,000 bucks in the till, even on a busy day. So I headed for the office of the Phoenix Herald and the chance that I could learn something about the cash involved from newspapers that were two years better than one week old. Thirty minutes later, I was in the back shop of the Herald receiving facts willingly supplied by a sandy-haired linotype operator with a sad face who had never heard the word forget. That's right, mister. It was the Second National Bank of Land Company here in town. It held up at 1.10 p.m. February 7, 1947 by three men who took $120,000 in unmarked cans, 20s, and 50s. One was badly wounded and running gunfight, but they all got away clean. No arrests, no suspects? Other than the usual rigmarole of trying to pin the job on every two-bit stick-up man hauled in the next six months, no. Mm -hmm. Anything else? No, thanks. I don't think... Say, wait a minute. Lonesome, Arizona, that unmarked bus schedule. Tell me, do you happen to know where something called Lonesome is, and if so, how a guy could get there if he doesn't have a car? Sure. It's 87 miles west of here, and the bus will do the trick. But not anymore today. Oh. Uh, the only bus left an hour ago. And now, young fella, you tell me something. What in Sam Hill is lonesome and a bus departure got to do with a bank robbery was pulled two years ago? Where I stand right now, Dad, I can't say. But when I get the lonesome, ask me again. I may have the answer for you. I was 30 minutes renting a car and an hour and 30 minutes getting to lonesome. Population 802. I drove without seeing anything that could possibly be mistaken for Sam Dietrich. And I was about to turn back when I saw something that brought my right foot down hard on the brake. It was a brand new green Nash standing outside a motel. California license plate. I got out of my car and got a look at the registration card wrapped around the steering wheel. It said Catherine E. Gordon. The motel only had three cabins that showed any light. The first belonged to the manager and the second to Kay. Close to an open window, I saw the man Kay was talking to. He was an ex-convict and part-time broker named Sam Dietrich. All right, all right. So Marlowe knows he was set up for Marty Stavka. Who cares? 
We're here, and so far, stop isn't. And if and when he does show, we'll be gone with the real black bag safe in our hands. Yes, but what about Gigi, Sam? I told you Marlowe mentioned his name. And I told you to forget it. Marlowe must have been swinging in the dark. Gigi can't be alive, Kay. He was badly hurt when Stopka and I got clear of the bank. But why wasn't his body found? I don't know, Kay. I've told you that a thousand times. <sighs> now, now, look, honey, why don't you just relax and think of us a little, huh? <laughs> Gigi's dead, baby. There's only you and me. Sam, you know how I feel about that. I love Gigi. The only reason I'm helping you, I don't want anything to do with this money. I only want to know for sure about Gigi. Okay, okay. Hey, did you get a line on Leland Mills, the name that was on that mailbox two years ago? Uh, yes, yes. He owns the place and lives there alone. A, a once upon a time small ranch on the last block in town, coming apart at the seams. Mm -hmm. What about Mills himself? He's an old duffer, maybe 50. Lives close to the fireside, day in and day out. <laughs> Good. That means I can handle him without any trouble. And now, look, baby, it's uh, seven now. At nine, this town will be fast asleep, and at ten, I'll take care of everything. So uh, why don't you just curl up there on the couch and think about nice things? Huh? Oh, nice things like what? Well, like the money I hid at Leland Mills' place five hours after the boys and I took that bank. <laughs> the $120,000 that's soon going to be back here with me where it belongs. Dad, I took my cue and left because one, Leland Mills was a man to be forewarned while 10 o'clock was still three hours away. I was ten minutes finding his place, which was on the edge of town, and another two locating the doorbell, which was the kind you pull to start a bunch of jingling inside. It was three pulls later before the door creaked slowly open, and what had to be Leland Mills stood in front of me. He was shaggy, gray hair curling on the sides of his neck, a face with a thousand crisscrossed wrinkles and dirty old clothes. Everything I'd expected, with one exception. Gripped firmly in both hands and pointed directly at my head was a long, long rifle. Who are you? Uh, Mr. Mills? Maybe. Well, I'm a private detective named Philip Marlowe, also someone who knows that there's $120,000 in cash hidden here on your grounds. $120,000? To the penny, yes. Two years ago, Mr. Mills of Phoenix Bank was robbed by three toughs named Dietrich Stopka and Gigi Ganther. Gigi? Hm, that's a queer name. It's not important, old man, but this is. Now, somehow or other, that stolen money was hidden here, in or around your place. Hmm. And tonight, one of those men is due back to collect. That, of course, means trouble for you. You think we should call the law? No, no, not yet. If we play it smart, we can get the dough spotted first and at least one of the three. All right. Mr. Marlowe, if you're sure of what you're saying, I only hope you are. Oh, I'm sorry about this gun here. I don't like poachers on my land. Yeah, we all have our pet peeves. Now, Mr. Mills, I want you to sit tight till I get back. And no matter what happens, don't open that door for anyone. Have you got that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Where are you going? To town. Check on the only two things that can possibly give us any unexpected trouble. One, a nasty man named Marty Stopka, and the other, a guy I've never even seen. The elusive Mr. G.G. Ganther. In just a moment, we will return to the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first... That elusive phantom voice will be back on CBS's great show, Sing It Again, tonight. And the prize for identifying him has now climbed to a value of $24,500. Yes, for music, suspense, and sensational prizes, don't miss the Sing It Again show tonight over most of these same CBS stations. And now, with Gerald Moore starred, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Lonesome Reunion. 
Leland Mills standing in the doorway and worried my way back to town. If Stopka and Gigi Ganther had no more trouble getting lonesome than I did, a reunion about as quiet as a truckload of hot dynamite was due to take place any minute. I passed the motel where Kay and Dietrich had holed up and saw that her car had been moved into the stall between cabins and draped with a blanket to hide its California place. So they were thinking along the same line that I was. At the hub of town, I parked and started to case the lively spots on Main Street, which took me all of ten minutes at a slow walk. But a short side-of-the-mouth conversation with a couple of resident sports revealed that the local underground stemmed from the Red Dog Cafe, a warped wood two-story wiki-up on the one side street in town. It was operated by a hard-bitten blonde, 160 pounds of western motif, complete with Stetson, red flannel shirt, hickok belt, blue jeans, and the name, Flora. She sat at a table at the back of the barroom, lending a cynical ear to nobody else but my old pal, Stopka. I walked up behind him, and when he turned around, I hung one on him. A good one! Hey! <laughs> jackass! What do you think you're doing? Sorry, Flora, nothing personal. Now that's enough! Now stop it, you hear me? No rough hustling in my joint. Come on, handsome, I mean you. Me? Why, Flora, how can you say that? I just came in to ask my old pal here some questions, that's all. Here we go, pal. Come on, sit up in that chair. Okay, okay, let me alone. See, Flora? It's the only way Stopka here knows how to start a conversation. Bring him another beer, will you? His old one got spilled. Sure, bright boy. When he see that you do tourists leave your beefs outside next time. Now, look, Stopka, I want to know what happened two years ago on that highway out here. You guys split up, didn't you? You better talk, Stopka. All right, we split up. The heat was on bad, and Gigi was half dead already from a cop slug in his back. Dietrich had all the dough, right? What do you think? I left him and Gigi off outside of town. I took the car to try to suck the cops away from him. We were supposed to meet later. But you kept going to save your own hide, didn't you? Certainly. It's going to pay off, sucker. You'll see. Uh-huh. Since the money was never found, you figured Dietrich hid it around here and he's coming back to dig it up. Is that it? Keep guessing, Shamus. Maybe we ought to loosen your jaw again. Stop that. That's all. You too. Now turn loose of him, handsome, and by Sadie, I'll plug you. Well, a real genuine 44. What museum just swiped that from, Flora? Never mind. Got a legal right to defend the peace and quiet of my joint, and after 22 years in this dodge, I know how to do it. Now, I asked you nice once, now I'm telling you. You, yeah. get out. That back door there. Hey, sure, I'll go, sister. Thanks for nothing. Hey, wait a minute, Flora. Don't let that lug get away. Shut up. Now, you sit down right there and count up to 50. Then you leave by the front, quietly. Okay, you win. One, two, three... Flora, look out, he's back. What? Sorry, what? Eddie. Uh, you buzzard bait. I'll leave this cannon on the back steps. So long, Flora. I beat it out the back door and into an alleyway between the shacks. Stopka was still in sight, but walking fast. And when I took after him, he saw me and started to run. There was a hard, flat sound, like someone striking wet sand with a hammer. <laughs> Stopka faltered and lurched up on his toes as if he'd suddenly changed his mind about running. At the same instant, on a wall, even with him, I saw the shadow of a man holding a pistol with a long, awkward barrel. The hard, flat sound came again. Stopka curled up on himself and fell. Then the shadow slid off the wall and disappeared. I ran for the wounded man, but by the time I got to him, there was no trace of the gunman. I rolled Stopka over. He was hit hard, slipping away fast. Silence. Gigi always used a silencer. You're dead, huh? You wise guys never know when to quit, do you? You're in real trouble now, handsome. Hey, wait a minute. I didn't do this. Come, I couldn't hear the shots, a silencer. 
Yeah, that's right. Trademark of a guy named Gigi Ganther. All I saw of him was his shadow on that wall there. Say, what kind of law have you got in this town, Flora? None. Except the highway patrol. They stop in every night. Okay, call him. Get him over here. This guy's Marty Stopka, wanted for a bank job, nearly two years old. No kidding. Who are you, his trainer? I'm a private detective who's got no business here, except I don't like to be pushed around. Now, listen, do you know Leland Mills' place at the edge of town? Sure. Well, you get the cops out to Mills' place by 10.30, do you understand? That's where the big attraction's going to be, if I can keep Gigi in his silence from interfering again. Now, let me down, beautiful. I won't let you down, handsome. For a city boy, you're all right. I stuck to a back road and drove with my lights out until I was a good, safe distance beyond Leland Mills Ranch. Then I hid the car in a dry gully and walked back. The house was dark and still, and I thought once of what might have happened to Mills if Gigi had gotten there ahead of me. I kept in the shadows and worked my way across the yard to the back door. Who's there? Marlo. Open up. I was beginning to worry. It's pretty near 10 o'clock. Yeah, I know, I know. Seen anybody so far? No. Nope, not a soul. Been watching close, too. Did you find them men, that G.G., that Stopka? Yeah. Stopka's dead and his killer's you to show up here any time now. Oh. We're going to have our hands full, I... Wait a minute, is that a car? Sure sounds like one. Yep. There, you can just make it out. Turned in down by the covert and stopped. Yeah. I think a man got out. Yeah, yeah, there he goes, across the field there behind your shed. It's Dietrich. I'm going out now, Mills. You stay here. No, I'm going too. That, that fellow's heading right for my water tank. All right, he's heading for your water tank. Don't get excited. You'll tip our mitt. Ooh. I get this, Mills. You've got to stay here and watch for Gigi. He's bound to show up, and when he does, you better have that rifle of yours handy because he's a killer. Do you understand? Yep. Sure, I understand. Don't worry, Marlowe. I'll keep my eyes open. Don't you worry about a thing. out of the door and started across the yard, I, I knew I was getting myself out on a nice, long limb. Leland Mills was about as reliable as William Tell with their hiccups, and the apple was on my head. It was too late to back up, so I skirted the barn, stayed below the crest of a low rise, and moved toward the elevated water tank until I heard a shovel biting dirt. I got a comfortable grip on my gun and headed up over the rise to where I could see. Yeah, it was Dietrich, all right. He was bent over under the tank and working on a hole as if his life depended on it. He didn't even look up until I was almost on top of him. Well, who is it? Who's there? Who is it? Me, Mr. Gordon. Marlowe. Marlowe? How did you get here? Wasn't easy, Sammy boy. But I had to come and apologize for losing your precious bag full of waste paper. You sure picked a dangerous time to show, sucker. You were fired once. Too bad you can't take a hint. Uh-huh. And being tagged as a patsy is lousy for my business, Dietrich. You should have thought of that. So just leave your hands on that shovel handle, Sam, and keep on digging. Maybe I'll let you take a peek at that 120 grand before I turn you both over to the police. Go on, dig! No! Not so fast, Marlowe. Mills, I told you to stay in the... Hey. hey. That's quite a pistol. Don't move. Neither one of you. i kill you if you move. You, Marlowe, drop your gun. Drop it. <laughs> well, this is where it's been all the time. A hundred and twenty thousand dollars. I've looked everywhere. Every day for two whole years, but I, I never thought of looking here under the water tank. You mean you knew where the money was all the time? You lie, you lie. I'm the only one that knew that. Oh, no. 
One night two years ago, I heard a noise in my barn. It was a man groaning. I looked in and I saw him. He was wounded. And I saw you when you come back from burying the money. I overheard the whole thing. You wouldn't tell them where you'd hidden it. You said you'd never tell anybody. But I was sure I could find it. And I looked everywhere except... Yeah, Mills, everywhere except here, under the water tank, where you buried Gigi's body after you killed him. And with his own gun at that. Oh, no, I didn't kill him. Dietrich here did. I only buried him so nobody would find out that him and Dietrich had stopped at my place. I almost went crazy looking for that money, but now I know where it is, and I'm going to have it. Well, you fool, you don't think I'd come out here with nothing but a shovel, do you? A friend of mine is right behind you with a gun in her hand. So come on, drop yours, Rube. <laughs> come on, come on, drop it. All right. Kay. That's an old trick, Dietrich. <laughs> Let him have it. Shoot, Kay, shoot! Didn't work, did it? I knew I'd have to kill you sometime anyway if you ever came back, so... You fool, Mills. I suppose that makes me next. Yep, Mr. Marlowe. I think it does. Think again, Mr. Mills. Who's that? Kay! You you were there all the time, and Dietrich wasn't bluffing. Oh, I love you, Kay, baby, and I'll take the gun now, Mills. Turn it loose. Come on, I'll break your arm. There. That's better. I'll look after this gun until the police get here. And uh, look after this one, too, Marlowe. I haven't got the courage to use it anyway. I couldn't even shoot Sam Dietrich with it. He's the one I wanted to use it on. Why? Because of Gigi? Yeah, because he killed Gigi and lied to me. I promised to help Dietrich only because I figured all three of them would show up here, Sam Stopka and, and Gigi. That way I hoped I'd find him again. You were right, baby. All three of them did show up. Only this time they finished their job. For good. It was 10.30 on the nose when we got back to the house And the highway patrol had just pulled up So the question and answer period started And by the time it was over All the field work finished up Four hours plus had gone by It took some fast conversation A lot of promises to stay handy But finally, Kay was left with me After all, her only real mistake had been falling in love with the wrong kind of a guy. When the last patrol car drove away, the desert was suddenly very still. The stars were small and sharp in the clear sky. The air was cold. Maybe that was why Kay Gordon trembled. Marlowe, I'm sorry about all this. I got you into it, remember? Mm Mm-hmm. You also got me out of it, Kay. Well, I can forget about Gigi, now that I know for sure what happened. (laughs) And all because of a jerk named Leland Mills. No, Mills was a desperate guy, Kay. After he buried Gigi, he just about went nuts trying to find the money. When he finally realized Dietrich was the only one who could lead him to it, he shot Stopkin and would have killed anybody else. Keep him from interfering with Dietrich until he uncovered the hiding place. You know, in a way, Marlowe, it was a horrible trick of fate. They both picked the same place to bury things. Not really. Mills and Dietrich had the same jobs to do, under the same conditions. They each had to bury something in a hurry and in the dark. So both of them picked a spot where the ground was soft and one that was clearly marked at the same time, under the water tank. Yeah. And it... Marlo, I'm kind of scared. I don't like this place. This spooky little town... The end of nowhere. Yeah. 
I wouldn't be caught dead here myself. Let's go, baby. I walked Kay to a car, started her safely on her way. So long, sucker. She waved once, then drove down the road and out of sight without looking back. Soon even the sound of the motor was gone. A long night and a strange reunion. And now two lonely lights were the only sign of life in lonesome Arizona. I stood on the empty highway for a few minutes and listened to the immense quiet of the desert. Then I went back to my rented car and headed for Phoenix and a plane for home. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore, and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Joan Banks, Edgar Barrier, Virginia Gregg, Jeff Chandler, Bill Boucher, and Jack Crucian. The special music is by Richard Orant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It was a weird racket that mushroomed in a world of gaudy canvas. And the man with purple hair, the inquisitive midget, and the lady with strong hands each played a part. But all that was only a sideshow when death got into the act. (laughs) 